Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, as 2023 draws to a close, I don't need to tell you that these last 12 months have not been the most productive year, not for Congress, and for the same reason, not really for us. I mean, there are only so many episodes we can do on the will they or won't they topic of tax extenders. But here we are, deep into December, with a new year and a monumental election year just over the horizon. And so before we turn to 2024 and its high stakes for tax policy, let's, in the spirit of the season, put a bow on 2023. What happened? More importantly, what didn't happen and why? And finally, and perhaps most importantly, what are the prospects of legislative relief next year? To help me tackle these questions, I'm joined today by our friends Jenna Cunha and Tom Stout. Tom, my first question is going to be for you. Before we talk about what Congress did not accomplish this year, can we just spend a few minutes talking, and maybe it's only very few, talking about the things that they did actually get done, that they had to get done? Sure, John. Well, arguably, it's a historically bare minimum. There were only 29 signed bills passed this year, probably a reflection of how sharply divided Congress is. They managed to increase the debt ceiling. Uh, they passed the Fiscal Responsibility Act at the last minute with only a couple of days to spare. And in connection with that, reached an agreement of sorts on the spending limits for this year. But there's now dispute about what exactly they agreed to. They did get reauthorizations done for defense programs, which was vital, and for the FAA, for civil aviation, and a few minor programs. They did a trade agreement with Taiwan. There were a lot of judicial and administrative nominations that got done, although they were done slowly. And they finally did the military promotions, although that was delayed for months over a number of problems. The rest of what they did in those 29 bills was pretty insignificant. They did things like authorizing a commemoration coin for the Marine Corps and reauthorizing duck stamps, you know, relatively minor value. They punted, though, on funding the government. So they did a couple of continuing resolutions to push the funding debate into next year, which is what we'll have to deal with then. Oh, and uh, I guess last but not least, they managed to depose a Speaker of the House, something that you know, has never been done before, which is probably another sign of how divided and contentious things are. But that's about all I can think of. <laughs> Well, that's you know, that last one, the, what happened with Speaker McCarthy, will probably be what this Congress is most remembered for. But the things you mentioned, you know, they're not nothing. The most notable things are we did not have a default because they were able to extend the debt limit or the authority. We did not have a government shutdown because they were able to have a continuing resolution into next year. So that's not nothing. But I, I hear your point, Tom. It's not going to go down in the annals of congressional history as one of the most productive ones. So, Jen, let me ask you then. I'm sure there's lots of people with lots of different points of view, but just what would you say? Why do you think Congress struggled to do more than this bare minimum that Tom laid out? I wish I could say it was complicated, but I think it's pretty simple because we have split government and the majority in the House in particular and in the Senate, extremely narrow majorities right now. So it has just been a hard to reach deals on long-term government funding. That's something that kind of plagued this Congress for months and months. I mean, we've been talking about this since August, really, and they just have not really managed to 
get enough consensus, especially in the House. The House normally is the place where it's easy to pass stuff, right? Yep. You know, I worked in the House, you worked in the House. Generally. Like, normally you have the majority, you know what the votes are going to be before you have the vote and you just get it done. But with that really narrow margin, it wasn't as simple as like, let's just go do this. And it's okay if we lose a few votes because we've got plenty to spare. They really had none to spare. And especially, as you say, with the divided government, in many cases, it wasn't clear what the point was, knowing that in the Senate, some of these bills that the House wanted to pass were probably doomed anyway. So I think you're right. Sometimes these things are complicated. Sometimes they're not. And in this case, divided control plus this incredibly narrow margin left them with the ability to not do many of the things that they wanted to do. Must do onlys. Yeah, I mean, they did. Like I said, yep, no default, they did. no government shutdown, but that's kind of it in terms of the big stuff that they did. All right. So we now have talked about in a very brief manner the things that they did do. Tom, let's turn to the things they didn't do. And maybe we should start with tax extenders. Remind us, what did they not get done on the topic that we talked about for the last year on tax extenders? What did they not accomplish? Well, there are three critical ones. These are all the schedule changes that were set up by the 2017 DCJA. Section 174, expensing of R&D, the cap on the interest deduction under 163J, which had gotten tightened, and bonus depreciation, which is now in phase out. All of those are things that have a considerable amount of support, probably a considerable amount of bipartisan support, but they just haven't been able to do it. The other thing that's sitting around that I think has a pretty good prospect of passing eventually is double tax relief for Taiwan, which I think is still on the agenda too. But I think they're going to, because of all the other problems, probably struggle to get the tax extenders done. Yeah, I think that's right. And the thing you didn't mention, which is sort of the key to this, is the child tax credit, which was obviously a priority for many Democrats. It's not that they didn't support the business extenders that you outlined. Those are probably of greatest importance to the listeners of this podcast. But of course, as we've talked about at various points over the last year, the child tax credit was in some ways the grease in the gears to get consensus on those other provisions, right? So that was not an easy thing to negotiate between a Republican House and a Democratic Senate as well. Fair enough to say? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's it's like bipartisan support, I think, for a lot of what is expiring in the TCJA, but the support for that, particularly on the Democratic side, is relatively weak compared to the desire to have an expanded refundable child credit. And that's what held up those tax extenders last year when they tried to get them done at the end. And it's, it's holding things up now. They need to reach an agreement on a combination bill that deals with the TCJA changes and the child tax credit. And that has vexed them so far. And yeah. they still haven't seen a proposal. All right, let's dig into that a little bit more then, Jen. So Tom outlined these extenders that have failed, the three business ones, the, and plus the child tax credit. Why do we think they failed? Because as Tom says, they've got bipartisan, bicameral support, debatable how deep the support is. The child tax credit in various forms has had bipartisan support. Why do you think they struggled to get those done this year? If there is no opportunity, which there has not been a big vehicle moving, that has been capable of holding this extenders package. So everyone was looking at the end of the year for a big omnibus spending bill. Happens almost every year, but did not happen this year. So where we started to hear maybe there was a little more agreement on the child tax credit in an extenders package this year, there was just no vehicle on which to hitch a ride 
And sometimes folks lose steam, right? They could be close to an agreement today, but if there's no vehicle, it's no good. The deal is good as toast because you just don't have the ability to move the bill. And extenders, and we get this question a lot, is, well, why didn't they pass extenders as a standalone? Why do you need a government funding bill? Well, extenders rarely move alone. Usually they're not paid for. They have a heavy price tag, especially these. They're quite costly with the child tax credit. And it's just highly unusual for these things to move as standalone pieces of legislation. So they were really just kind of waiting for the opportunity to move. Yeah. So let's just highlight a couple of those points because you're dead on there. Uh, Because you're right. We do get that question a lot. Like, why does it need another vehicle? Everybody agrees we should just do this. So these cost money. Let's just say we're dealing with $100 billion, $50 billion roughly on the business provisions, another $50 on the child tax credit. That's $100 billion. There's almost no instance, maybe no instance that I can recall of Congress ever having paid for extenders. So we're talking about a $100 billion price tag. And even if you did want to pay for them, well, that creates even more controversy, like what pay-fors Republicans and Democrats would have to agree to those. And then a $100 billion unpaid-for tax bill needs to kind of get attached to something bigger because you couldn't just attach it to, I don't know, as Tom was saying, the Taiwan tax legislation, which costs zero, and say, oh, by the way, we're just going to toss on this $100 billion provision on there. Extenders just don't move alone. I guess there's one instance kind of where extenders were important enough to sort of go by themselves. Jen, I think you were there for the PATH Act, but that was kind of an outlier, wouldn't you say? That was an outlier. And there was a big end of the year package that year as well. But that was more of a kind of a policy extenders package where there was a top to bottom review on a bipartisan basis of existing extenders. And there were policy decisions made to make some of them permanent and to eliminate others. This is not that exercise. Right. Here we're talking about changing dates, not let's make the R&D credit permanent. Let's make active financing exception permanent. Like that was a more of a policy driven thing than just changing dates. I think that's right. Okay. Tom, you talked a little bit about Taiwan, but let's just go back again. What other tax items beyond just those extenders were in the realm of possible? Taiwan was one. And I still think we have moderated optimism that that could happen at some point in the future. Anything else in tax that we think is kind of in play or no? Not that I can see, other than the child tax credit, as you mentioned. Taiwan, I think, is looking pretty good. There is bipartisan, bicameral, strong support for that. I think it passed through the Finance Committee unanimously. And the only objection to it was coming from the Foreign Relations Committee, which has now given that up. It was really a jurisdictional thing. So that looks like it's in pretty good shape if they can find a vehicle to attach it to, because you know, as Jen alluded to the problem of putting tax bills on the floor where they can be amended and everybody can add their pet tax provisions to it, which is one of the reasons why extenders tend to go at the last minute when it's sort of take it this way or leave it. Other than that, it's hard to see much happening unless they try to find some revenue raising provisions to attach to something they want the money for, but it's hard to say what they would be. Yeah, As you said, John, they, they raise objections of their own. Yeah, they do, right? Revenue raising provisions are always challenging to do. There are very few things that raise revenue that are not terribly controversial. So one other one I was thinking of was they still have to do something on the FAA reauthorization. So they've temporarily extended FAA into next year. This is Federal Aviation Administration funding. And the reason tax matters there is there are tax provisions in there, particularly like the airline ticket tax that would otherwise expire. 
So that does open the door to taxes, I guess, just a crack that you have to deal with FAA next year, that there will be a tax provision in there, which is reauthorizing this ticket tax and other items that could open the door perhaps slightly to taxes that shouldn't be controversial. Normally, we just extend these FAA funding and authorizations pretty routinely, but they punted, as you said, that into 2024. So we'll have to see how that goes. All right, Jen, let me come back to you. So now that we've understood what happened or why it didn't happen in 2023, I guess the question now is let's look forward. What is any of this, what we've been through or not been through in the last year, tell us about what we should expect for 2024. Is there a reason for optimism that we'll get more in particular on taxes? And I think it does highlight how difficult it has been for these provisions that are non-controversial, seemingly have bipartisan support. It was difficult, right? They've been hanging out for two years, this extenders package. So I think for 2024, at least what I think about is, well, They haven't done them yet, so I guess there's an opportunity to do them next year. And we're still looking for that vehicle. And of course, the House pushed out, they agreed on the two-tiered CR, the laddered CR approach. So we have two deadlines coming up, January 19th and February 2nd. That's when the first short-term and second short-term CR expires. So everyone is kind of looking at Q1 2024 as that next opportunity to move a tax extenders package. Because as we said before, it needs a bigger bill. Maybe this will materialize into a bigger, longer term funding deal that could then support the weight of an extenders package. But by the same token, now they've been expired for over two years. So then you start to see some hesitation with respect to the policy underlying such a long gap period in an extenders package. I mean, over two years, has not been done, at least not in recent years. We have not seen that kind of a lapse in extenders. So the policy arguments, they become a little harder, right? Because you're making the same arguments for two years over and over and over again. And policymakers are starting to think, well, we support this, but there didn't seem to be a whole lot of pressure. Everything has been business as usual over the last two years. So what is the policy argument in favor of this additional spending? I think that starts to get a little more wobbly. I totally agree. I totally agree. So let's just come back to what you said then. So if they do kind of an omnibus or a big spending bill in 2024 to fund the government, fund other priorities, then we potentially have a vehicle to attach extenders to. Mm -hmm. If on the other hand, either they can't reach a deal, which of course would lead to a government shutdown, or alternatively, what if they just do another continuing resolution? They just say, look, we can't agree, but we don't have an, want to have a shutdown. Let's just extend current funding levels, which, by the way, is what they did in 2023. In For the rest of to, all of 2024, a straight continuing resolution, that's probably not a great vehicle for tax extenders to jump onto, right, Jen? Nope. No, definitely right. not. And then to your point on now that we've been multiple years gone by, I mean, you've heard it. I've heard it. We've all heard it. People on the Hill asked the question, wait, tell me again why this was so important. Like the world did not stop spinning on its axis on January 1 of 2022. So tell me again why this is so urgent. And the longer time goes on, the more people start asking that question. I think that's a really good point. All right. Last question. Let's just say we do get a bill in 2024 on these extenders. And I know many of you listening would be thrilled to get that. But there's a separate question, an additional question. 
what period of time would it apply to? Would the restoration, for example, of the deductibility of RE costs under 174 be made retroactive back to the date of expiration, which was January 1, 2022? Or would they just say, how about just starting now or something else? What do we think about retroactivity by the time we turn to 2024? What are your thoughts, Tom? I think you've mentioned most of the considerations for it. I mean, the world hasn't stopped spinning since it didn't get done. And if we were to make 174 retroactive, we'd be talking about a lot of amended returns, overburdening the already overburdened IRS, additional costs potentially. I mean, all those things weigh against retroactive application of this thing. The one thing I would say on the other side of that is because this is tied up with an expanded refundable child credit that they probably have to put together in order to make a deal here, there may be some impetus on the Democratic side to make that retroactive at least to 2023, because if they do that, then the refunds come in 2024, which is the election year. But whether that's enough to move anything seems kind of a long shot at best. So yeah, that's a good point that ironically, you might have Democrats asking for retroactivity on the business provisions to increase their cost, or therefore creating more headroom to do more on the child tax credit if we're trying to achieve relative parity between the costs of the two. So that is potentially good news in terms of retroactivity. What are your thoughts, Jen? I agree with Tom. Well, there are a couple of things, right? The retroactivity, I think, is harder to justify from a pure policy perspective, right? Because it's not influencing past behavior. The two years have come and gone. But there's this complication with the business extenders trying to get a deal, having this revenue parity. If you trim back retroactivity with respect to the business ones, then you have less money to use in the child tax credit. So I think that's actually creating this friction where arguably Democrats would want retroactivity. And I think it's also for the reason that Tom mentioned, which is not just to kind of inflate the price of the business extenders in order to get more out of the CTC. But if you want CTC retroactivity, it's hard to justify not providing retroactivity for the business provisions as well. If you want those child tax credit taxpayers to get refunds next year during the election cycle. So if we do get this, it's gonna be one of the really intensely debated questions for sure. And just one last word in favor of retroactivity. One is, of course, it doesn't have to be all the way to 2022. You could forget 2022, say, you know what? Returns are filed, it's over, it's done. Let's just make it retroactive to 2023 and then 2024. That would be one way to deal with it. So possibly that's an outcome. And another one is to avoid amended returns. Maybe there's an administrative way to provide retroactive relief without burdening the IRS with all these amended returns. But who knows? We're just guessing at this point, and we won't know until and if they actually get a deal sometime next year. And of course, let's not forget the possibility that as we run up against those dates that you mentioned, they could punt again. So we may be rolling along with punting the funding question further and further into the spring. So we'll just have to follow that as 2024 starts to unfold. Well, that's all we have time for today. So thank you, Jen. Thank you, Tom. In closing, just a few final observations. First, let me pick up again on the retroactivity of tax extenders. Look, taxpayers have good reasons to ask for retroactive application of extenders. Many taxpayers have relied on Congress to do what they said they would do, which is to restore the tax benefits that have expired. And taxpayers have behaved accordingly. It's just that, look, the further into the future we get, the harder it is to go back to the past. 
Now, on another note, Jen said, and I agreed with her, that part of the reason Congress was not especially productive was the extremely narrow margin of control Republicans have in the House. But I want to be fair here, and we should note that the Democrats had an almost identical margin of control in the House in the prior Congress. Yet that Congress managed to pass the American Rescue Plan Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, gun control, and you know, several other things. So the question is, what gives? Why was it so much harder for Republicans? Well, I think this is just a reminder of how powerful it can be to have the trifecta of control in Washington, to have the House, the Senate, and the White House, just as Democrats did in 2021 and 2022. And of course, just as Republicans did back in 2017, when they were able to muscle through the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And that, of course, is why the 2024 elections are so pivotal to the direction of tax policy. I think no matter how the 2024 elections go, 2025 is going to be the most consequential tax year since 2017. But in what way and in what direction? Well, that's why these elections matter. And I promise we'll be back in 2024 to start a year-long discussion with you on just that point. But until then, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and suggestions to our inbox. And I want to wish you and those important to you the happiest of holidays. Take care, and I hope to see you soon. 